everybody, and welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And this week, we're starting our James Bond, uh, Roger Moore series with Live and Let Die. 007 is sent to stop a diabolically brilliant heroin magnate armed with a complex organization and a reliable tarot card reader. Mm-hmm. Brace yourselves, everyone. This is going to be bumpy. We have some thoughts about this movie. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, it's so bad. I have a theory. I, I don't care. It's bad. I'm not saying it's good. Okay. But I always strive to understand. We do try to understand intent and thoughts behind things, but sometimes things are just bad. Oh, I don't think it's a good intent behind any okay. of what's going on That's here. That's important. So let's preface by saying... This movie's really fucking racist. Really racist. <laughs> Bad. We're like the whitest people ever. This movie is so racist. I made me so uncomfortable. Like, bad. <laughs> There's a world in which I could see them having turned it around and be good. But but no. <laughs> but not with what they no. what they were working with, not with who was in charge of creating this movie. No. Bad salty broccoli, bad. <laughs> this is a black exploitation film. Yes, with James Bond. That's which it. Could be really fucking cool. It could be very interesting if the production team had been composed of black people. Like if the teams behind Superfly and Cleopatra Jones and Across 110th Street, these movies that were made. Through white-owned studios with Uh tiny budgets, but produced by predominantly black-dominated production Mm -hmm. teams and made specifically for black audiences. Yes. If that had been the motivation behind this movie, it would be fascinating. And it would have been so much better. Instead, they took the same creative team that they've always used and said, okay, you're going to make it a black exploitation film. Figure it out. No. And they wrote the most garbage racist take on Bond they ever could. Pile of garbage. Is this the stupid mother that tailed you uptown? There seems to be some mistake. My name is... James is for tombstones, baby. Y'all take this honky out and waste him now. So this is how we're kicking off Roger Moore. Fine. How, how have you never, ever seen a Roger Moore Bond movie? I mean, similar to how I had never seen any Sean Connery I know they played them on TV, but I wasn't, I just didn't care. I was watching my friend's VHS tape. Well, let's be very clear too. You didn't have cable and that was where all of these were. Well, I know there are a couple, like I know like Octopussy show it was up on screen because I remember like walking through the living room and my dad would be like, what are you watching, dad? He's like, oh, this is Bond. Okay. Mm. Like as I'm going to get my Diet Coke and walk back to my room because- as one of four children, we all had TVs in our room because that was the only way you survived to my house. Yeah. Yeah. These were the Bond staples. These were the mm-hmm. Saturday afternoon yeah. TBS Bond classics. And that's why I was always surprised to find I hadn't seen a lot of Sean Connery mm-hmm. because they show the Roger Moore ones. They yeah. were the ones that always got cable play. And it makes sense because with this movie... Despite the awfulness, despite the way too long runtime, mm-hmm. the action is fucking awesome. It's way better. I will say that. The action sequences are really good mm-hmm. and they stay good. And accepting this movie, I will say that there is a popcorn munchability to a movie like this. Sure. Where you're just like, okay, cool. Blowing stuff up is happening. I'm just watching this to entertain myself with with 
explosions and fast chases and things. Mm -hmm. It's just, this is not good. (laughs) But there's fun trivia, so hey, we at least get that. The budget for this movie was $7 million. Okay. Its U.S. gross was $35,377,000. Worldwide, it grossed $126,377,000. All right. And that is not counting home box office. Damn. And other things. Like, that's just at the movie theater itself. That's awesome. Let's talk about our writing. Ew. (laughs) Our writer is Tom Mankiewicz. Before this, he wrote The Sweet Ride and Diamonds Are Forever. Oh, no. After this, he wrote The Man with the Golden Gun. Brace yourself for next time. Mother Jugs and Speed, The Cassandra Crossing, The Eagle Has Landed. He has uncredited roles with Superman and Superman 2, Lady Hawk, and then Dragnet, which he directed. So we'll just leave that there. Leave that there. Woo! The story is so bad. It's bad enough that it's racist, right? Like, it's bad enough that it's a black villain in the most egregiously campy way we could do it. Yep. And then they layer it with all of this, this Louisiana stuff, voodoo stuff, the tarot readings, the alligators, which like, okay, I like that we did sharks with Sean Connery. So now we're gonna do alligators. I'm cool with that. But with this villain, it's just like, really? Really? It's just yucky. And it feels gross. Plot-wise, it can't be because it's Bond. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. Yeah. But you didn't make these characters relatable or believable. Yeah, there's there's no dimension to any of them. And it's dehumanizing. Yes. Which is where the ickiness comes from. Yep. Even if the only character you make really interesting and viable is Kananga. Uh Uh-huh our main villain. Mm-hmm. At least then we've got some value here where you can be like, oh, this is really compelling and interesting. And there's reasons why we're doing things this way. And there's no attention paid to anything anybody's doing. Oh, there's lots of trivia about this script. He had a full introduction sequence, just like a lot of the older Bond movies mm-hmm. that was completely removed from the script. Don't know what it was, but it was there. Okay. The boat driver, Coral Jr., is a direct reference to Quarrel, the boat driver, and Dr. No. Okay. And they considered bringing Honey Rider back for this film. Oh. Having Ursula Andress yeah. show back up randomly would be kind of an interesting take. Yeah, no, I agree. Makowitz apparently dabbled with tarot to get used to the art and performed tarot readings for guests at parties. At one party, Michael Caine and his then-girlfriend attended, and Tom used the tarot and predicted that they would be married. They did get married very soon after, and Michael Caine's wife was convinced for a while that Mankiewicz had special powers. Weird. (laughs) Weird. Um, He originally wrote the main Bond girl to be black, Okay. but the producers were concerned about marketing an interracial romance. (sighs) What was interesting, too, is it was for international viewing. They weren't worried about it in America. They were worried about it for international countries. That character would have been so much more interesting. Solitaire was supposed to be black, and Rosie, the agent that he runs across, Uh is supposed to be white. That would be way better. It would have been. And Rosie being played by Jane Seymour would have been a better role for Jane Seymour. Probably. I wish they would have switched it, because I think it would have been so much more interesting. They thought it was daring to use black villains during the height of the Black Panther movement. Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah, fucking white people. Yeah, a little bit. 
And there is a who could have been better for our screenwriting. They wanted Richard Maybaum, who had written all of our scripts up until this point, but he was too busy and he had to decline. He did not like this movie. Good, because no one should. Maybe not for the right reasons. His quote was, to process drugs in the middle of the jungle is not a bond caper. What? Okay, fair. Well, but let me let me take it at that, is that that's the second problem with this movie. Mm-hmm. Separating out the exploitative aspect of it, mm-hmm. which I'm not going to forgive these guys for it. His other point is quite sound in that this isn't a Bond film. This is boring as shit. It is boring as shit. And I no, I agree with that. Like, oh, how we process drugs. That is not a Bond thing. No, I totally get that. I fully do. Like if if the heroin is being smuggled into like the water supply to try to take down the US. Yeah. Now we've got a Bond movie. Of course. But why the fuck is he going to do this? Mm-hmm. This doesn't make sense. Yeah. I think Richard Maybaum, A, because he's a good screenwriter, might have recognized, yeah, we got to tone this shit down. It's really bad. Mm-hmm. But B, would have elevated the campiness of the premise enough mm-hmm. that we could have matched the level of everything else we were doing. When your plot is that boring, mm-hmm. but you've got all this heightened mythology around your villains, yeah. it just makes that exploitation pop out so much worse. So the last Bond film, he was in America, right? For a good Di- chunk Diamonds of it. Diamonds are forever. Yeah, for a chunk of it. And then they wound up in Central America, at the end, okay. I believe. So I could see a world where they could have played it with just like, okay, the American CIA FBI has a tip on this thing and it is super complicated and we we just need to get this done and oh James Bond is on our side of the world and he's been working with Felix this long time Felix is just like hey can you help us out while you're here that could have been a way into this so it's like okay Bond's kind of slumming it in terms of like this is not a Bond type of thing to go after that could have been fun and also play with the whole like oh we have a brand new Bond now too I mean, maybe, but they do open it up to that. The reason that he comes in is because British agents are getting killed. Yeah. MI6 is involved in this stuff, and now these but people are getting murdered. Insomnia, sir? Instructions. You haven't much time. I'll explain as you pack. Uh, pack, sir? Three of our agents have been killed during the last 24 hours. Doors in New York, Hamilton in New Orleans... And Baines in the Caribbean. Oh, Baines. I rather like Baines. We shared the same bootmaker. Coffee? Sir? But again, it goes back to why is MI6 involved in this at all, to begin with. Right. See, like, there was a way to do it. They did it poorly. Yeah. Yeah. It just... Writing blows. Our director is Guy Hamilton, returning from Goldfinger and Diamonds Are Forever. Goldfinger's great. Diamonds Are Forever is garbage. But not because of his directing, I feel. No, it's the script. But like Diamonds Are Forever, this goes on too long with stuff that has no payoff and is not interesting. Yeah, that's fair. So, And we had the same problem with Diamonds Are Forever. I think the best thing that we can probably say about Guy Hamilton, knowing what he did with Goldfinger, mm-hmm. I think he makes Roger Moore really work in this movie. I really like Roger Moore. I, I will give you that. That's the value that we get from Guy Hamilton here. The performances he gets from his lead. Otherwise, I think it's a pretty workmanlike attitude. That's what he's always been as a Mm -hmm. director. Now for our cast. And we start with our big whole long discussion Mm -hmm. of Roger Moore 
as James Bond. Mm -hmm. My name's Bond. James Bond. Give me some initial thoughts here. I really like Sean Connery, but I also loved George Lazenby. And I feel like Roger Moore is somewhere in between the two. He's younger. Well, no, he's not really younger. He's got that young feeling that you got with Lazenby. He also is like body type wise, very similar to Lazenby. But he has that charm and that schmooze that Connery had. So I feel like in all honesty, he's a great new Bond because he's he's the exact middle of those two guys. He is the perfect new Bond. Yeah, no, exactly. Like he's he's not a complete reinvention because that would have been hard. He is a smoother whiskey mm-hmm. to Sean Connery's really biting scotch. Fair. Fair. Roger Moore was 45 at the time of filming of this movie. He is the oldest Bond to ever be on screen. To start as Bond. That's what's so funny about him seeming younger. And he does seem younger. He He really does. He does. But he is the oldest. His first screen credits came in 1945. Okay. Before this, he was in Piccadilly Incident, Paper Orchid, The Last Time I Saw Paris, The King's Thief, Diane, Ivanhoe, Maverick, No Man's Land, and... His big giant claim to fame before any of this mm-hmm. was seven years on The Saint. Okay. He was the title oh, yeah. role. After this, after this, he did gold and all the movies we're about to watch, The Man with the Golden Gun, The Spy Who Loved Me, Moonraker, For Your Eyes Only, Octopussy, A View to a Kill. And he also in that time did Shout at the Devil, Cannonball Run, Curse of the Pink Panther, The Quest, Spice World. <laughs> He had at least one a one-time role on Alias, Okay. Boat Trip, and his final big role was Cats and Dogs, The Revenge of Kitty Galore. <laughs> he considers this his second best Bond performance behind The Spy Who Loved Me. Okay. He wrote a production diary about this film Oh. that was yeah. actually published in 1973 and has been re-released apparently as of last year. So oh, I nice. want to dig this up. Cool. It apparently had color stills that his current wife had taken during that time. So many notes and moments, and he was incredibly self-deprecating in it, which is something that classically he is known for. Mm -hmm. He's very just silly and sarcastic about himself and doesn't take himself seriously at all. My favorite thing in terms of celebrities are celebrities that do not take themselves seriously at all, who like can fully admit this is the stupidest thing in the world that I am famous. He was discouraged from raising his eyebrow on camera, which was a trademark of his character in The Saint. Okay. He should not have been available at the time of the filming of this movie, Mm -hmm. but his show that he was doing in the United States after The Saint flopped completely. Oh. And so he was suddenly available to take the role. Now, who could have been better? Because there's always who could have been better when we have a new Bond. Sure. Sean Connery was offered five and a half million dollars to reprise his role and turned it down. He was tired. That is a lot of money in 1973. I I, I know. That was nearly the whole budget of this movie. I get it. (laughs) But like he was also, he was tired. So I understand. Oh yeah. He called Roger Moore an ideal Bond. Oh, that's nice. United Artists really wanted an American to play Bond. No, no. So they proposed Burt Reynolds. Okay. Really? He's the American version of Sean Connery. Mm. They look so, they could be cousins. They look so much alike. Paul Newman. 
No, thank you. So dreamy. He's pretty, but I am not a Paul Newman girl. Robert Redford. There you go. That's my dude. (laughs) (laughs) That's my dude. If there was a 70s American actor who could pull off Bond, Robert Redford's probably the one. I mean, sneakers. Come on. And after the success of Dirty Harry, Clint Eastwood was offered the role. It's the same character. Yeah, he he turned it down. He says, no, it needs to be an English actor. Correct. But he also, funny enough, inspired the fact that Bond in this film doesn't use his regular gun. He uses a forty-four Magnum. Okay, like Dirty Harry. Just like Dirty Harry. Okay, all right. Yafet Koto as Kananga and Mr. Big. Before this movie, he was in The Thomas Crown Affair, oh. the original, Five Card Stud, Bone, and the black exploitation classic Across 110th Street. I don't know anything about that. It was a big inspiration for Jackie Brown. Oh, okay. I've also not seen Jackie Brown. After this, he was in Radon Entebbe, Roots, Alien. Okay. 1980s Othello, The Running Man, Midnight Run, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, The Puppet Masters, Two of By Sea, and had a long role with Homicide Life on the Street. Okay. He was 33 during the time of filming of this movie, so he was the youngest villain ever. Roger Moore claimed that Koto was difficult on set, but Yafet countered and said he was simply quiet. He might have seen Stam Dawfish at the time just because he was quiet. And, yeah. But he and, said he was always curious. And somebody who's more jokey and like self-depreciating like Roger Moore might see that as like, I don't want to talk to you. He stated that he was not allowed to do press or attend the premiere as the producers were afraid of people hearing before the film came out that the villain was black. <sighs> and his quote on this script pretty much sums up every feeling I have about it. Mm-hmm. I had to dig deep in my soul and brain and come up with a level of reality that would offset the sea of stereotype crap that Mankiewicz wrote that had nothing to do with the black experience or culture. He said he drew on his real life to save the role, but stated the way Kananga dies was a joke. The entire experience was not as rewarding as I wanted it to be. Thank you. This could have been a really great role. It could have been really interesting. I mean, he dies by having an air pellet shoved into his mouth and blowing up like a fucking balloon. Yeah. It's so dumb. He should have like gotten eaten by his alligators. Come on. Oh my God. That would have been perfect. That's what we were waiting for. It's such a moment for a fascinating, interesting villain. They could have had one of the henchmen blow up like a balloon because that's funny. Like, okay, that's what you do to henchmen. You have them die in silly ways. But your villain has to die in not only a believable, but a poetic way. And that's why you have all these fucking alligators. He really does act his ass he off. He does. In He's trying movie. really hard. You can tell that he is doing everything he can to make this character believable and savable. And I really do like him in the role. Mm-hmm. It's just there's no saving a, a role that's been written so badly. Jane Seymour as Solitaire. Is Dr. Quinn a woman? Yeah. Before this, she had been in Oh, What a Lovely War, The Only Way, and Young Winston. This was her breakout role. Yep. After this, The Story of David, Our Mutual Friend, 1978's Battlestar Galactica movie. Somewhere in Time, The Scarlet Pimpernel from 1982, 1983's The Phantom of the Opera, Head Office, Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, Wedding Crashers and Austin Land. Mm-hmm. She's had a little revival recently. She's been doing some cameo roles in some movies. Yeah. I mean, she hasn't aged a day. She's a beautiful woman. But her character, she doesn't bring anything interesting to it. No. She's just the pretty white lady who Bond seduces. Yeah. Dash that's... date rapes. 
Yeah. Oh, the boy. rapiness. The rapiness. The rapiness is going to be prevalent no matter what. <laughs> now I we're calling it out because it's not good. Yeah, it's bad. <laughs> it's not okay. Sir Richard Attenborough, who is her father-in-law, I had no idea about this. What? He wrote a letter to the producers requesting that she be given some sympathetic treatment. She may well need a shoulder to lean on. I need context for that. I don't. That was that was in the fucking trivia. Wow. So either he thought she wasn't going to be very good or he thought the material was going to be too much for her to handle. I think this was her first major film yeah, role. It, it, no. So I think it was more, he's a big time name. This is a big time production. Yeah. And he's looking at it going, Can she's going to need help. Be gentle. She doesn't know what this is going to be like. And I do. Oh, Richard Attenborough. <laughs> I love you. Who could have been better? Mm. See above on our comments for a black role. Diana Ross was pitched this role. What? Yeah. She would have been amazing. I know. Also pitched for this were Catherine Deneuve, Ooh. Goldie Hawn, <gasps> and Helen Mirren. <laughs> any of them. Take any of them. Sorry, Dr. Quinn. Any of them. Like... All of those people. I know. And all of them would have brought their own unique take on solitaire. And I say any of them in this role or the other lady role. All of them would have been better. Woo. Damn. My God. It is not that hard, is it? All right. Clifton James, the Sheriff Pepper. <laughs> what are you? Some kind of doomsday machine, boy. Well, we got a cage strong enough to hold an animal like you here. Okay, he is also a stereotype. Like He's a cartoon. He is a cartoon. But he is enjoyable as a cartoon. He's such nice levity to what's happening. He chews up so much fucking scenery, literally, with the tobacco he's chewing. I know, but it's just like, he's like, by the time we meet him, the movie has gone on way too long. I know. And it's all garbage. And then you see him and you're like, well, this makes no sense, but at least it's entertaining. <laughs> He's a longtime character actor. Yes. Before this, The Last Mile, 1961 Something Wild, Experiment in Terror, Invitation to a Gunfighter, The Chase from 1966, Cool Hand Luke, Will Penny, The New Centurions, and Kid Blue. After this, he was in the 1973 Iceman Cometh with Catherine Hepburn, The Last Detail, The Laughing Policeman, Bank Shot, Juggernaut, the Man with the Golden Gun. Oh, he's coming back, uh, people. Rancho Deluxe, Silver Streak, Guiana Tragedy, The Story of Jim Jones, Superman 2, The Untouchables, Eight Men Out, She-Devil, The Bonfire, The Vanities, Lone Star, Sunshine State, and Raising Flag. Wow. Yeah, all right. I mean, like I said, he's much needed comic relief, despite being not great as a person. Yeah. Well, his character. His character. Yeah. He seems like he's a perfectly fine dude. Julius Harris as Teehee, that is the right-hand man of Kananga. Before this, he was in Shaft's Big Score, mm. Superfly, Trouble Man, and Black Caesar. Okay. And you're going to notice this. All these character actors are very big actors within the black exploitation scene. So they got the actors. Yeah, the actors just didn't get the production team to know how to Or the writers, or yeah. the directors. Even if they were consulting, if even they if had, they weren't the main writers. If they had just gotten the writers. With like a Maybaum overseeing like the like, okay, I'm going to give you all the story. Y'all write it. 
Y'all give me dialogue. I'll, we'll do we'll do additional dialogue credits for all of yeah. these these writers. Ugh. It could have been so good. It could have been good, but it's bad. After this movie, he did Hell Up in Harlem, The Taking of Pelham 123, the original, 1976's King Kong, Islands in the Stream, Looking for Mr. Goodbar, First Family from 1980, Circle of Power, Crime Wave, Dark Man, Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man, and tons of television yeah. work. I mean, he's good. I don't like his claw. Because it's it's performed horribly. Yeah. Because like you can tell like where his actual hand is and that's that gives it away. So that's where like the fake prosthetic is not done well. Next up, Jeffrey Holder as Baron Samedi. Before this, he was in 1967's Doctor Doolittle. Everything you always wanted to know about sex, but we're, we're too afraid, afraid to ask. ask. After this, the Noah, Swashbuckler, Annie, Boomerang, and Bear in the Big Blue House. He was a voice on that. Oh. But he is most known for being a Broadway legend. Oh. He won Best Director and Costume Designer for The Wiz in 1975. Wow. He was the Uncola man for 7-Up throughout the 70s and 80s. And he is Broadway royalty. He was a very famous dancer mm. and director and all-around theater legend in the mm-hmm. Broadway community. So... He has a very rich and fascinating story outside of the movie world. That's awesome. Which makes sense for how he moves his body and how he performs this role. Mm -hmm. He hated working with snakes and was particularly against falling into a coffin filled with snakes. Yeah. But Princess Alexandra was visiting set the day they were filming Mm -hmm. that. And to avoid losing face in front of royalty... He performed the role. <sighs> Good for you, dude. Oh, England. And also, he was not the only one afraid of snakes. Roger Moore was scared of it. Mm-hmm. He also commiserated with Jeffrey Holder about mm-hmm. how awful the scene was to have to do. Yeah. The script supervisor refused to be on set for that sequence. <laughs> An actor fainted during their time where they were having to be killed by a snake, and Jane Seymour ran away screaming one time when a, when a snake got close to her. Yeah, I would too. They were all fucking freaked out. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just entertaining. Um, David Hedison as Felix Leiter. Mm-hmm. Before this, he was in The Enemy Below, 1958's The Fly, mm-hmm. 1960's The Lost World, The Greatest Story Ever Told, and the television show Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, and then did only TV throughout the 70s and 80s, but he will make a return for Licensed Kill mm. with Timothy Dalton. Okay. Gloria Hendry as Rosie. She was before this in For Love of Ivy, The Landlord, Across 110th Street, and Black Caesar. After this, Slaughter's Big Ripoff, Hell Up in Harlem, Black Belt Jones, Savage Sisters, Bare Knuckles, Pumpkinhead 2, Blood Wings, and Freaky Deaky. I mean, she's also polishing a turd and... She would have been better on the solitaire role. Like, if they could have switched, it would have been so much better. Uh, yeah, it would have been really interesting. We have Tommy Lane as Adam. That's the guy who winds up driving the boat, the other mm-hmm. sort of henchman dude. Before this, he was in Cotton Comes to Harlem, Shaft, Seamus, and Ganja and Hess. Shaft and Ganja and Hess are two big ones. Mm-hmm. Ganja and Hess is a black exploitation horror movie that is a big inspiration for Get Out. Oh, okay. And then after this, didn't do very much, so... Hmm. And finally, Arnold Williams is Cab Driver 1. Obviously, you know, the main cab driver who has lines in the film. Mm-hmm. 
But he actually has a long career before this. He was in The Lost Man, Cotton Comes to Harlem, The Panic in Needle Park, The Hot Rock, The King of Marvin Gardens, Across 110th Street, and Scream Blackula Scream. And after this, he was in Mother Jugs and Speed and Inside Moves. Hmm. But he he had a pretty big character role run there in the in the late 60s, early 70s, and some very in the gritty New York drama stuff that was going on. Mm-hmm. And of course. We'll get to what are basically Bond Arpons here. Mm-hmm. Bernard Lee and Lois Maxwell return as M and Moneypenny, respectively. Uh-huh. Maxwell requested a raise and did not get it, but instead got double pay due to a technical error requiring an additional day of filming. Oh, nice. Desmond Llewellyn was not included in this film, mm-hmm. much to his annoyance. Oh. The producers were trying to go away from the gadgets. No! They thought it was too much, but uh, they were wrong. Correct. And Nikki Vanderzil, who has dubbed so many Bond women mm-hmm. throughout this whole process, it's finally, of course, overdubbed Jane Seymour's lines for this movie. So weird. She's really good at it. She is really good at it. I mean, props for to voice performers, but like, still, it's weird. Yeah, because Jane Seymour has a lovely voice herself. Who knows? It might just I- not have read, or the because of the rushing of the production, they just didn't have good sound on set. So. Yeah. They went to Nikki, who knows how to do it. Mm-hmm. Been doing it since Dr. No. Awards. Oh, what? This film was nominated for an Academy Award. Wow. Going to switch you around. It was for the song. Okay. Thanks. Yeah, that's right. We have to talk about the theme song. Oh, yeah. Because this is a big fucking deal. I forgot about this until the credits started rolling. Up until now, all of our theme songs have been sort of prominent singer forward and our favorite one didn't even make it into the movie. Orchestral pieces. But this time, we've got a rock song. We do. It is Paul McCartney and Wings with Live and Let Die. When you were young and your heart was an open book You used to say ever-changing world in which we live in makes you give in and cry say live and let die die. die. what do you think Is it so weird to hear this song yes. in the movie? Yes. Because that, it's so iconic now? It is. It very much is. But man, it's a good fucking song. It really is. I mean, I like I like the title. Like it works. But yeah, it's super like weird. <laughs> super weird. It is so perfect for Bond mm-hmm. while still retaining just enough McCartney to mm-hmm. feel like a, a McCartney song. Yeah. Like, it, it's a rare instance where that song lives on its own apart from this movie. Well, and honestly, I think you got to give all credit to the person who also composed all the music for this movie. That would be Sir George Martin, mm-hmm. who, of course, produced this because it's Paul. Yeah. But also, he did the score and everything for the movie and really does a good job of blending the main Bond theme in with Live and Let Die for the main score. Mm-hmm. What makes it so good for the movie is how orchestrated it is. If it was just Wings doing the song, Mm -hmm. it wouldn't be a whole lot. But that orchestral 
you know, surge in during the chorus is so huge and powerful and very Bond. And that's what really sells the song as great. McCartney said that after the title song was fully recorded with an orchestra, they brought it to Guy Hamilton, who said, yeah, that's good for a demo, but when are you going to do the real record? (laughs) It charted and peaked at number two in the US and number nine in the UK. Okay. McCartney paid for the orchestra out of his own pocket. Rolling Stone accused him of selling out by writing for this. Fuck off, Rolling Stone. Uh, But he did become the first rock artist nominated for best song. Mm -hmm. So That's cool. And it almost wasn't used. Salty wanted a black female artist to sing the song. Okay, now I appreciate that. Like, okay, like a Diana Ross. He actually preferred the version that was sung in the nightclub (laughs) to this final song, which I'm like, oh, fuck no. Okay, I like it in the nightclub. It would not have worked for the opening credit sequence at all. Oh, God, no, that arrangement. No. If it was McCartney's arrangement with a Diana Ross or a powerhouse singer, even a Shirley Bassey. Yeah. Oh, Shirley Bassey would have knocked it apart. His arrangement with uh, a black female voice would have been awesome. Yeah. That would have been great. But McCartney stood his ground, and I think we're better off for it. He said, I'm not selling you this song unless my band gets to perform it. That's fair. And Wings was not a real known quantity at this point. Yeah. Band on the Run had come out, mm-hmm. I think, or was about to come out, but Wings wasn't a big deal. deal. Yeah. And so I think he's, he rightfully said, I'm not doing this unless I'm up front and center with it. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, get somebody else to do the song. Yeah. Like, why do you have me here? Mm-hmm. And that makes sense. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I, I'm, I'm into it. I don't blame Paul for that. So nominated for an Academy Award. Didn't win. But <laughs> we get to say that this horrible turd did get nominated for an award. Weird. All right. Let's run through our gadgets, which we do for Bond. Mm-hmm. We have the pulse detonator with the noise exploding a UN agent's brain. We get the magnetic wristwatch, the Rolex Submariner. I like it. I'm sure the overburdened British taxpayer would be fascinated to know how the special ordnance section disperses its funds. In future, Commander, allow me to suggest a perfectly adequate watchmaker just down the street. Good God. You see, by pulling out this button, sir, it turns the watch into a hyper-intensified magnetic field, powerful enough to even deflect the path of a bullet at long range, or so Q claims. I feel very tempted to test that theory right now. That is Roger Moore's favorite gadget. It's very practical and could totally exist. It's really good. The bug sweeper to find hidden microphones. Mm -hmm. And the clothing brush communicator, Mm -hmm. the radio in there. Funny enough, that same device wound up in Doctor Who later on a couple of years later because Roger Moore visited the set and was talking to the prop man who did not recognize him. Oh, fine. And he sold the communicator prop for two pounds. Aw, that's cute. (laughs) I like that. The shark gun with the air pellets. Okay. You see Kananga die that way. Mm -hmm. The Felix lighter, a radio transmitter in the car lighter. I think that's precious. (laughs) It's a great name for it. It is. It's it's very cheeky and also appropriate. Robo Sumeti, the robot Baron Sumeti that comes out of the grave first. The flute communicator that Sumeti uses. (laughs) Flute communicator. The voodoo figure cameras. Mm-hmm. interspersed throughout the forest the trap door in san monique oh yeah and all of the fucking trap doors mm-hmm. there's so many the trick coffin the revolving table at the filet of soul yeah Teehee's prosthetic arm 
the aftershave spray can flamethrower for the snake. It's nice. Very fun. Was that really a gadget or just MacGyvering something? Wikipedia really liberally uses gadgets. Okay. But I don't know that we'd seen that before from no, aerosol. So we hadn't, but that's it's pretty that's, good. That's not a gadget. Yeah, probably So much not. as science. Kananga's side mirror dart gun. Yeah. And finally, the espresso maker, <laughs> which was relatively new at the time, but with the pitch perfect line from M. Is that all it does? Yeah. <laughs> no, his kitchen, I'm like, on one hand, I'm like, this is so 70s. On the other hand, it's like, this is amazing. <laughs> See, that was a perfect opportunity for Q to be in there making coffees. Like, so what else does it do? It makes coffee. Like, that would have been a funny joke for him to be there for two seconds. I know, but that whole scene is brilliant with him having to hide the agent. It's so good. Yeah. Trivia. Finally, trivia. This is the first Bond film set in a fictional country. Okay. And the first political assassination. Kananga is the prime minister Uh, of San Monique. Okay. It holds the record for the most watched film broadcast in the UK. In 1980, 23.5 million viewers watched it on ITV. A lot more people watch the Game of Thrones premiere. Yeah, but for network TV in a much smaller country, that's a pretty big deal. The producers reportedly had to pay protection money to local Harlem gang. And when it ran out, the production was encouraged to leave. Hmm. So they filmed in Harlem. Well, that's nice. Moore got kidney stones during the filming of this movie. And both he and Jane Seymour caught dysentery filming in Jamaica. Oh, no. (laughs) I'm sorry. That's horrible. The zipper scene was made even more by Roger Moore's overprotective wife, who insisted on being in the room. Mm. The wire was attached to a supervisor who pulled the zipper down while Moore moved his watch. Mm-hmm. Moore stated that it took 29 takes to get the timing yeah. right with the watch. That makes sense. Ross Kananga mm-hmm. was credited as stunt coordinator. Mm-hmm. He ran the alligator farm that they went to. <laughs> the sign out front that says, warning, trespassers will be eaten, mm-hmm. was left in the film. And he did the stunt himself wearing Moore's clothes and crocodile shoes, which was Roger Moore's goofy idea. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) I love that. It took five takes to complete the stunt. On the fourth, the croc snapped at one of the shoes, Mm -hmm. and he had to repeatedly replace his clothes in order to get it right. He received 193 stitches because of the five different takes. Oh, wow. And the fact that the croc snapped at him. Oh. He got paid $60,000 for doing the stunt. Uh Uh-huh. And they loved being around him so much, they named the villain after him. That's pretty cool. It's a good bit. They were like, this dude's awesome. He did this whole thing for us. We love it. We're naming the bad guy after you. I I think that's cool. (laughs) I like that. The Boat Chase. This was originally written in the script as scene 156, the most terrific boat chase you've ever seen. That's accurate. (laughs) The jump over the bridge made it into the Guinness Book of World Records. Mm-hmm. It was 110 feet Ooh. and stood for over three years. Hmm. Clifton James, the sheriff's reaction was actual. Oh, okay. It was actual surprise at the craziness yeah. and was kept in the final cut. I love it. The stunt boat was specially designed with redistributed weight so that it would fly stable over yeah. the bridge. The second boat was not supposed to collide with the police car, but when it happened... The script was completely rewritten to accommodate it. I'm cool with that. 
There were 26 boats built for the film and 17 were completely destroyed. Yeah, please. And Moore suffered an injury at one point when an engine cut and carried him into the boathouse. It cracked his front teeth and twisted his knee and he had to walk with a cane, but he finished all of the scenes as he only had to sit in a boat. The stunt driver for the double-decker bus was an actual London bus driver mm-hmm. with rigorous training because they require incredible certification to drive a double-decker bus. Yes. Moore himself had to take a crash course in driving in order to do the close-up scenes. Mm-hmm. And the top was completely removed, mm-hmm. then put back in place on ball bearings. So when it hit the bridge, it would it just, just slide, slide off. off. Yeah. The snake bathtub sequence had to be filmed at 50 degrees Fahrenheit, so the snake would be slow and not move around too fast for the camera to see it. Yeah. Salty Broccoli were good friends with Moore before the movie, but now as his employers, Roger Moore said this was the beginning of the end of their relationship. (laughs) That's funny, considering how many movies he did for them. Oh, and we should say... It's Saltzman and Broccoli are the producers who own the rights yes, we for Bond. When we started this last year, we started referring to them as Salty Broccoli because it's just funny. <laughs> it's just funny that someone's last name is actually Broccoli and he works with someone named Saltzman. So we call them Salty Broccoli. All right. The white pimp mobile. Which they call. They call it a pimp mobile. Oh, it's bad. It's so bad. But it's actually a Corvette with the molding of a Cadillac Eldorado, or as the Dunham coach of New Jersey who built the car calls it, the Corverado. Dunham did several conversions for the film, and he claims the Corverado was used in Superfly and modified for a lot of other films after this as well. All right. So that became an actual custom model car for a while. Uh The tarot deck was created specifically for the film, and the High Priestess card features the likeness of Jane Seymour. This is one of three films where Bond does not wear a tuxedo. True. Yeah. Huh. And Roger Moore is the first Bond to perform the intro sequence without a hat. Yeah, because we saw him saying goodbye to hats mm-hmm. in the previous film. And finally, Solitaire is the only character to ever beat James Bond at cards. <laughs> All right. We made it through. Oh, geez. This terrible movie. Yeah. How many tarot cards are you going to give this film? One. Oh. Okay. And that one is for Mr. Roger Moore. Mm. Because this this movie was such a slog to get through. Like we were 30 minutes in. I was like, we still have an hour and a half to go? It's insane how much happens and how uninteresting it is. None of it's interesting. There's so much shit going on. Like I never want to see this film again. (laughs) I never want to watch this film again. That's fair. So it's a one. See, I used to really enjoy this movie, but I think I enjoyed parts of it. I think I'd enjoyed the boat chase. I think I enjoyed the novelness of the coffin and the sequence. I really remember that. That intro sequence is good. I'm going to go one and a half, just a tiny bit higher. It's bad. Yeah. It's really bad. It's good. I would say this, that if you're a Bond completionist, like you should watch it. It is an important moment for Bond. True. Just have some popcorn and other stuff to do while you watch it so that when the exciting stuff happens, you can be like, oh, cool, exciting. Okay, I don't need to pay any attention to the rest of this right now. Yeah. So what's next? Well, we're getting the same gang back together. Yay. Maybe not for as much racism. Oh, hopefully. For the man with the golden gun. Okay. Came out a year after. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've for sure seen this one too, but I don't remember a whole lot. Okay. Until next time. Bye, everybody. Thank you.
Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.